up, y'all? It's Zabka Living Corporate, and we're back. Yes, we're back from outer space, having another great conversation with um, someone who is passionate about amplifying black and brown voices at work, because that's what we do, right? Like, we exist to um, to highlight and center underrepresented perspectives and experiences and identities at work. Um, we've been around for, shoot now, going on a couple, like, it's almost like up a year two now, um, and just really thankful for all the support. So shout out to all of our listeners. Uh, shout out to uh, the folks working nine to five. Shout out to the people working 10 to nines, you know, whatever y'all working, man. Shout out to y'all. And then, of course, shout out to uh, shout out to our allies, you know, our Bucky's, our white wolves. Um, so, you know, for those of us who are not Marvel fans, Bucky was Captain America's sidekick. And then um, when he had to be rehabilitated because he was brainwashed by Dr. Zemo, Baron Zemo. Um, he then uh, went to Wakanda and when he went to Wakanda, he became the white wolf and um, you know, Wakanda's all Africa, you know, it's all a bunch of African people cause it's in Africa. So it's all black people, but he was the white wolf. Like he was trusted, you know, he was a, he was a true ally of the people. So all of that to say, um, we also engage allies on living corporate, right? So this is just, this is not like exclusive, right? Like if you are, you know, less melanated than, um, as long as you down for uh, the Wakandans, hey, we down for y'all, right? So <laughs> with that being said, we have a really dope guest, uh, Dr. Lily Jampo. Uh, Dr. Lily Jampo helps organizations solve difficult challenges and ensure that their workplaces are happy, productive, and equitable. She primarily works with the diversity, equity, and inclusion firm Ready Set, based in Oakland, California, and a people scientist and strategist. Dr. Jampo is also a frequent speaker and writes on diversity and inclusion from a behavioral science data perspective. She believes that one of the keys to moving forward is understanding how people think, behave, and relate. Lily, Dr. Jampo, Dr. L, Dr. J. Hi. What's up? How are you doing? I'm I'm doing pretty great. I'm almost always doing great. I'm feeling super fulfilled by my work right now. Right. And I'm generally speaking a pretty positive person, so it's uh, it's all good. It's I feel like it's a rare thing when the anger and disappointment that you feel about the world and society can be channeled into your actual day job. So I'm constantly grateful for that and all the other wonderful things in my life. Man, you know, and you've been a few different places, right? So I know that you're already set today, but, you know, you, you've had a journey, right? Like, can we talk about your background and how you got into this world? Of yeah, inclusion? definitely. Cool. Well, so I've always been a pretty curious person about other people and society in general. Um, I've also taken some non-traditional routes in my career, trying to follow that curiosity. And in terms of background, I actually grew up in an eco-hotel in Costa Rica. And that was a really interesting experience for me. It was the first time that I really saw inequality and yet also to confront how my white privilege uh, played out there, even while I felt like an outsider myself. So growing up in a different country and also a hotel made me super curious about just how people uh, relate to each other, um, how differences play out in societies. I also came from a pretty social justice family since they're all uh, eco-warriors. <laughs> and so I knew I wanted to do something social justice related. Um, I started off in political science, but I ended up getting my PhD in social psychology where I was examining human behavior, specifically gender biases in organizations. So for a while, I thought I was going to be in academia, um, and I spent three years as a professor in London at a business school. 
But while I really enjoyed my research, I really was also feeling like I could make a bigger impact working to implement that research in organizations. And this all came to a head when I was going through the middle of a pretty nasty divorce and I was like, screw everything. So I quit my tenure track career and joined a tech startup here in Silicon Valley. And after a few months there, I realized I wasn't really working as much on issues that felt really socially important. So I transitioned to working with ReadySet, uh, my amazing team doing diversity, equity, and inclusion work. And I've done a serious amount of learning since then. So I came into this work thinking that I was an expert in my field, and I didn't realize how much of a novice I was when it came to actual equity issues. For example, I barely knew or used the term intersectional feminism before starting this work in the field. So part of what I love about my job now is how much I've been able to grow as a person and also help others who are just beginning their journey to be able to, to do so, too. And I really do have uh, my colleagues and my network to thank for that. That's incredible. And, you know, you talk about your your privilege and you talk about like, you know, you coming to learn things and experience things on your own and develop um, set levels of uh, fluency and awareness. I couldn't help but notice myself that you're white. You know what I'm saying? Like I, it leapt out to me. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm curious to know. I'm curious to know about how your whiteness intersects with the work that you do within behavioral and data science and like, you know, and like what, when I say how it in, intersects with the work you do, like how does it impact how you show up and and what observations do you have in like being in this space? Yes. Right. I am very white or unmelanated, as you put before. I'm literally half Viking, half Ashkenazi Jew. That's incredible. Um, so shout out, to the, shout out to both yeah, the Ashkenazi Jews and, and the Vikings. That's Wow. <laughs> My mom is basically like 100% Swedish, Norwegian. My whiteness really does impact my work in a pretty big way. So when I started my PhD, I was actually focusing on behavioral economics. And the reason that I'm telling you this background is because I want to explain how my behavior and my work has changed since then. So when I was doing behavioral economics in that field, it's mostly dominated by white men, still is. Um, And when I was doing that work, I always felt like I had to prove myself to be taken seriously. And when I started transitioning into looking at gender biases, I was told to stop doing that work by many of my advisors and colleagues because I was told no one was going to take me seriously as a scientist. Now, of course, that made me, you know, want to do that work more. But now that I'm a white person and I have a data and quantitative background, I realize how privileged that identity is. Right. So I come into a room with a bunch of tech executives and lay my PhD out on the table, proverbially speaking, talk data with them, um, and they give me the validation and respect that many of my colleagues who've been doing this work much longer than me and who are not white just don't get. And it actually impacts the way that I play a role on my team, and for good reason. So for example, we had a company we were working with who were just not taking the CEO of my company seriously, who is a black woman. Mm. And she has a JD from Harvard. She worked as an international <laughs> human rights lawyer. She's the CEO of her own successful company, has been doing this work for, you know, five times as long as I have. Right. Um, he put me in the room, and I've, I had only been working in this space for a few months, and their attitudes just totally changed. They went from, you know, defensive and aggressive to, oh, yeah, of course, you know, this, this sounds great. What, what do we need to do to get there? <laughs> Can we? And can I pause I right there though? Because yeah. like I'm yeah, so tr- I'm so triggered. Uh, okay, so 
<laughs> so I, I, I'm sorry about triggering you. No, 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 no. It's not your Hashtag fault. Real talk. <laughs> so the reason I'm I'm pausing is because I think, and we haven't done these studies because of uh, white fragility and the fact that. I think academia is still like very much so like a white space. Maybe they, we have, and I just haven't seen it, but it's like, I'd love to see like a behavioral study done on how the majority tends to treat black and brown professionals with a certain level of hostility and defensiveness that they don't treat um, white counterparts. Right. Like mm-hmm. your, your earlier point about the CEO is like, why? Like, and I've, and I've been in situations where I've been on the receiving end and, or I've observed like, why are you talking to me like I'm your enemy or like I like I'm trying to get you? Like, wh- why are we not able to have like a an actual dialogue? Like, why does everything feel really transactional and like um, a zero sum game in this conversation? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I totally do. And I, I think, you know, you're totally reading my mind about wanting to do some behavioral studies on this stuff. I think about this all the time, too. And I think you're absolutely right. There is there is quite a bit of evidence showing that you know, um, people from underrepresented backgrounds in different domains, including women, have to prove it again and again and again and and give more and more uh, legitimacy in order to be taken seriously. But I do think that the aggression and hostility is an interesting component of this. And I have a lot of theories about why. And I think, um, and I don't want to go too down the rabbit hole, but you got me excited about this topic. So just for a second. So I've been really playing around with in my head is the entitlement to the goodwill and patience of people of color towards white people to learn and to get to where they need to be. And I'm talking about not just, you know, average people, but well-meaning progressive liberal people who still believe that it is your work, people of color's work, to be able to get them to where they need to be. And it is my job and it is our jobs as, you know, as a company. But I would love to see research showing that there's um, an expectation or an entitled expectation to how um, we are supposed to be doing this work for people and also putting up with them when they don't want to do it and don't want to, uh, you know, put their 50% of the work in. Um, so there's lots of other studies I want to go over, but that's just one that I've been playing around with as well. Is that entitlement aspect? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So I'm not, so I, and I, I'm not trying to cut you off and cause you're telling a story. So I'm not trying to ironically mansplain <laughs> and jump all over your stuff. So please continue with the story. It's just, you said that and I was like, Oh, and I, just, I wanted to just ask the question, please continue. So you come into this space, you're relatively new. The CEO, the person who's actually, built the company and has the education from a a fairly elite recognized institution was not as well received. You come in and the whole vibe changes. Yes, the whole vibe changes. Not only that, but, you know, we just have more and an easier time getting scopes of work sign and actually um, convincing people. But I think I want to also talk about one interesting other thing that I observed. And this is something that I observe in a couple of different companies and situations and that. A lot of the people who do this, um, I think we have this this idea of what that person looks like, this CEO of a company or who sits on the board of a company. Um, white women are very much involved in the same process. And in fact, I see this pattern from white women almost more than I see it from white men. And minute. I think there's Wait. something really interesting in that. Wait a minute. Hold on. <laughs> Say that again. <laughs> 
I think that um, often we see white women putting up the most resistance to doing diversity, equity, and inclusion work within companies, especially if they've already achieved a position of power. And, you know, there's a there's a litany of reasons why that happens. A lot of them are psychological. A lot of them are just where women sit in the power hierarchy of society. So they sit in the middle, not at the highest point, which is where white men sit, and not at the lowest point, which is where a lot of people of color sit in terms of how much power and influence you have. So they have a lot to lose. And a lot of the ways that um, women have managed to achieve a semblance of power is by either mimicking white men or upholding the very systems of oppression um, that have, well, essentially benefited them for a long time, but also benefited white men. And so there's a lot to lose from getting rid of that power, but there's also a, a kind of pull yourselves up by your bootstraps attitude of, well, I don't, you know, I got here, so why does anyone else need help to do so? But I do think that there's something greater in terms of how white women have benefited from systems of oppression compared to women of color and men of color. And I wonder, like, and so, you know, I am not a Ph.D. So, you know, I'm, and so when I say things like, you know, I haven't seen this, I'm being I'm not trying to say that it doesn't exist. What research or what like written work would you recommend, if any, that explores the historicity of white women and their relation to systems of power in America? Yeah, that's a great question. And I also want to, before I continue, just say that I don't have, you know, quantitative research to back that observation up. It's an observation I made. However, this idea that white women um, uphold systems of oppression can be seen in lots of other data that we have. For example, who was the group that uh, voted Donald Trump into power? Um, We have lots of other data to show that um, white women are upholding systems of oppression. But I think, you know, we can you can go back and look at historical data about how this happened. Um, Stephanie Jones Rogers is an amazing academic who wrote about how white women were complicit in um, slavery, essentially, in Mm. the American South. And it really starts, you know, it starts there, it starts in other areas of colonialism. Um, But there's quite a few academics who are writing about this. And then there's also, you know, thought leaders who are writing about this as well, Rachel Cargill, Robin D'Angelo. I mean, she's a she's a white author, but she's written extensively on, on white fragility. Ibram Kendi, Ijeoma Oluo. Those are all folks that I think are really interesting to read and have said a lot more on this than, than I have. So again, like just shout out to you for like highlighting black authors um, and other thought leaders in your quick list that you just like sprouted off like it was nothing. That's super <laughs> dope. We've talked a little bit about how we've seen like power abused or uh, taken advantage of. Um, and, but I'd like to talk a little bit more about what like effective allyship looks like. Right. And like, we've had a few of these types of calls, like these conversations on living corporate. I don't think that like they ever get old. I think it's really important that we have, um, advocates and aspirational allies on this platform because there are a variety of people that listen to Living Corporate. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of a lot of diversity and inclusion professionals listen to Living Corporate, and I can say that I just I don't know if I've even seen a lot of programming that is really explicit on what it means to build inclusive behaviors um, as mm-hmm. a leader. I don't know if I've seen training that's really really. Uh, intentional in building that fluency or that capability or that muscle, whatever word you want to use. And so I'm really curious from your perspective and specific to white women, what does effective allyship look like in the workplace? 
Yeah, that's such a great question, and I think we're talking about allyship more and more, and it's um, it's something we talk a lot about with the organizations we work with. I think that, you know, first of all, let's talk about intentions for a minute. I think I feel sometimes when I talk about white women that there is this assumption that there's an intention to be racist, for example. Mm. I don't think that that's necessarily true. I think there's a strong desire to be good people. And I think that, you know, women having been marginalized themselves feel like they have been victims of that marginalization as well. The problem is that um, that strong desire to be a good person when they are told that their actions are contributing to racism or they are complicit in a system of white supremacy, it makes us mm. feel threatened that our own progressiveness, our own, you know, willingness to help others, our, our, our idealism of ourselves as good people is, is super threatened and that makes us shut down. And I think that's because we've been, I mean, and I am not the first person to say this, obviously, there's lots of people have written on it, it's what we teach. Um, we have not had to grow up and experience uh, the discomfort of having to talk about race and racism and systems of oppression. And so for a lot of people, this is the first time they're even hearing about it. So the first thing is just being comfortable with that discomfort um, of understanding that it's not about you, it's about systems of oppression, that you still might have behaviors and, and um, even uh, attitudes that are formed through your experience with the world, with culture, with television, um, with radio, the way that we learn how to stereotype. It's just ingrained in our society. And so we have to start slowing down and being able to recognize how we actually are contributing to that. Um, we have to also be careful in terms of allyship with, with how we show up. So I'm always trying to be conscientious about not taking up too much space and making sure that I'm amplifying non-white voices and work and also listening more than I talk. I mean, I think this has been a big change for me over the past couple of years. This is also um, part of the framework that we teach in our Ally Skills Workshop, which I co-facilitate with my colleagues Willie Jackson and Kim Tran at ReadySet. And it's really about moving from passive allyship to active allyship, um, what we call being an accomplice. And so it means centering impacted communities rather than yourself, owning your impact when you hurt somebody's feelings over your intentions to not have hurt their feelings, um, listening and learning and, and expressing humility and amplifying other people's voices. And it's also about how we demonstrate growth in our humble when we mess up and we will mess up. And so I myself am trying to be a better accomplice in this work. I think in terms of DEI practitioners, there's a huge place for white women who are working in this space. Um, and I know a lot of white women are trying to figure out what exactly their role is. I think one of our roles is to be able to do some of the emotional work and the, the burden of carrying some of these conversations and some of this work forward so that it's not only people of color who are doing it. So there's also, you know, my privilege as a white person uh, I can get angry and I could push back in a way that doesn't have the same repercussions for um, my black colleagues. I can lend my voice or carry conversations that are triggering or exhausting for people of color to do, for example, convincing white women that they play a part in white supremacy or that feminism has to be intersectional for it to work. So I think, you know, there's there's very specific roles that, that we can play that can help us be better allies, both personally and to other folks in the DEI space. 
it's just such an interesting dynamic, too, when you talk about like the things you're talking about around feeling threatened or feeling attacked or feeling just just various levels of insecurity. Like it's it's really interesting as it intersects with having white women managers. Right. So like, yes, <laughs> so like, <laughs> even being even more complex is like having a white woman manager who is like supposed to be the czar of diversity and inclusion. And like you're working for this person and it's like. Okay, I recognize that. Uh, okay, I recognize that you've been inv- invited to these very like exclusive white spaces to sit on a panel, you know, to mm-hmm. to word diarrhea on diversity and inclusion and like the latest thing that you read in um, Cosmopolitan. But I also have like insights and life experience, and those mm-hmm. life experiences mean things, and I I know things by merit of my life that you may not understand or you just f- frankly don't even think about. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just interesting to me when I think about like this dynamic of like this, like the corporatized diversity and inclusion space and how you have oftentimes white women in these positions of leadership in these groups and they themselves are either. I mean, everybody has blind spots, so it's not a it's not like even like this huge knock. It's not like this huge indictment. It's just the reality of. You're trying to lead a space that it's critical for you to be empathetic, coachable and humble in. And if you think that you have nothing to learn, Mm. that you think that everyone around you, especially people of color, black and brown folks are just there to do your bidding like that is Mm. just cruelly Mm. ironic. You know what I mean? But like Mm -hmm. I I see that, though. I see that often, Mm -hmm. like in these corporate spaces where, you know, whoever is like the leader of DNI. And it's like, why are you here? And I, mm-hmm. and I know there's tension, right? Like I've had conversations with Jennifer Brown and like uh, Jennifer mm-hmm. Brown, she's talked about like, she's like, she, she's, I'm not gonna say she's on one side, I'm on the other, but it's like my impression of our conversation was like, I feel like we're, we're kind of like, we being white DNI professors are constantly mm-hmm. questioned and have to like really sh- pr- show and prove that we should be here. And I'm kind of like, well, yeah, you should though. I mean, I'm not trying yeah. to be like a jerk. It's just like, you should, you should show and prove that you should be here because we don't have a historical track record of, I don't know of a, a model, like a person, a white diversity and inclusion, one diversity and inclusion advocate that's like, wow, this is the model. And I've asked yeah, other, yeah. you know what I mean? So, I mean, I know yeah. I'm kind of ranting, but like, I'm asking. No, that. no, I, I hear you. I do. And I, I actually, I really agree with you. It's, it's something that I've thought a lot about, even as I'm thinking about my own career trajectory, right? Because I want to help do this work, but I don't want to occupy a position of power, um, first of all, on my own as a white person. Like, I don't think I should be the head of diversity and inclusion at a company, <laughs> at least not right now in this societal context, because I think context really matters, too. And I think we often don't think about that. We think in terms of meritocracy, you know, mm-hmm. about like who has worked hard and who deserves to be here and who doesn't. But we're we're talking about representation. We're talking about justice. We're talking about repairing harms that have been done over hundreds of years in our society. And right now, diversity and inclusion is often like one of the places where people of color can have uh, influence and power within a company. And it's important too, because, well, I'm not explaining it to you because I'm I'm hearing all of your points. And I'm just saying that I agree with you because I think it's I think you have to be in a position of taking a step back and learning. And I think you can find your niche as a white person in this area. I mean, mine is behavioral science, data, 
right now. I'm also still trying to figure that out. But I'm also really focused on learning because like if we're not doing that personal learning, we're just repeating those same things that have happened throughout history. And we're repeating those hierarchies and we're maintaining that status quo. So yes, short TLDR, you're right. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I want to talk about your work, right? I'm curious about what does it look like because like so I've met people who are in DNI and like they and they purport themselves to be like um, data strategists, right? Like so, yeah. and but but they don't actually have any actual context. And I'm kind of jumping ahead because because this is probably the question I'm going to ask you in a little bit. But they don't really have like the empathy or the like fluency and just understanding like American history that would then inform how they do their work. And so it's in my mind, and this is based on just what my my very limited experience right is. It feels to me like you're almost sitting in two camps, like you're sitting in like this hard, quantitative, scientific, um, measured space. But then you're also because of your own background, you still do have a passion around like connecting inclusion and diversity and equity with justice and the the historical foundations of the work itself, as well as um, the work and writings of black and brown women and activists and people who came before you. Right. So like, Mm. do you feel it? Do you feel a duality there? Do you feel as if like you're uniquely placed or do you feel as if your profile is common within like this data science and behavioral space that you work in? Yeah, that's a great question. I I think about this a lot. I, I don't think that it's common. I think if it was common, we'd see a lot more data scientists doing diversity, equity and inclusion work. Yeah. And I mean, there's reasons, there's other reasons for that. I mean, I could be making a $300,000 salary <laughs> if I wanted to do data science in a tech company. Um, we don't do this work for the monies. But I do think that I've had different relationships with data and how I approach this work. And I think I do want to start this by saying that it, it is really because of my team at Ready Set that I have become this hybrid that I feel comfortable working in. And that I am able to do both the quantitative aspects of my job and also the very human aspects of my job. I think when I came into this field, I has I had been taught my entire career that quantitative, uh, evidence-based, scientifically published data is the only type of data of value. So evidence-based work, evidence-based just in general is such a buzzword now. I think everybody right. hears it. And I think people believe evidence-based means that it has to be couched in rigorous academic methods and scientific papers and outcomes calculated in ROI. And I definitely did when I started this work. Um, so I'll just tell you a quick story. I think when my first day or first week of working with ReadySet, um, I was analyzing data for a company. And I was doing it the way that I had always been taught to, which is trying to find significant statistical difference between groups in a sample. And in order to do that, when you have fewer than five people in a sample, you usually just take them that group out because it's not going to be it's not going to be statistically valid. And I remember um, having this conversation, I think in the room was Rory Gerberg, one of my colleagues and Kim Tran. And we had this conversation, which was started by them with this. Why, why are we leaving out a small sample? Now this sample had been a sample of transgender people within a company. Okay. And in my mind, I was just like, well, we'll just leave them out because they're not a big enough group. Wow. And yeah. they were, you know, that was how I, I had been taught. And they were like, wait, but 
the whole point of doing this work is to represent the voices and the opinions and the feelings of underrepresented small numbers of people within a company. And I was like, God, like that makes total sense. <laughs> um, and it's ridiculous that I had even thought in my mind that that was an appropriate thing to do, you know, in terms of getting these major insights. So that's just a story about, you know, how I first started thinking about this. So I really want to give credit to my teammates for helping me get there. Um, I still think that evidence-based research is important, but so much of that research is based on white Eurocentric idea samples and methods. Quant data can be super useful, so let's say you want to track representation in your company or show that a bias exists, but it should not be necessary for doing this work. It's just that our concept of data, what data is, and what kind of data is valid and important is biased. And I've been writing a lot about this recently. I'm trying to publish it soon. Um, but I've just been getting this. I feel like this idea is so complex and interesting. But I have noticed that there has been a trend with the people that we work with. And that is people's responses to DEI work in particular. They use data, and data with a big D, I call it, to stall and delegitimize or otherwise reject diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives. So, and, yo, yeah. yo, wait a second, golly, <laughs> Dr. Jampol on here dropping crazy, crazy, crazy flex bombs. Oh my gosh, and then also... Yeah, and please feel free to like stop me whenever I tend to just yo, go on. Oh, yeah, really no, I'm trying, about- I'm trying not to be rude. Uh, air horns for your team, because I know you shouted them out, so... Okay, so first of all, yo, you said people use big data, big capital D data to discount dni initiatives and engage like like say that again yeah so i think that people are using data to basically put off doing the hard work to delegitimize the work itself or just reject like having to do any of that work itself and i'll explain a little bit why i think this is happening so i think it's happening in part because the way that people in power use data when relation to diversity, equity, inclusion work is similar to other ways that we inadvertently uphold systems of oppression. It's essentially gatekeeping and it benefits white people. And I think one of the ways that I've seen this is to overly demanding evidence from DEI best practices. So wanting to know like what exactly is going to work here in my specific context, but then also refusing to contribute to those best practices by actually being innovative and, and taking risks in that space so that we can add to the knowledge base. And then another way is through dehumanizing human data by not looking beyond the quantitative quote unquote hard data. So not wanting to listen to people's stories, not wanting to hear the voices of employees that already exist within their organizations, by not wanting to listen to experts, people like um, my teammates who have been spending years doing this work. And then finally, using data or the need for more evidence to block the efforts to actually go forward on that data. And so often, you know, we'll have a conversation with people that often sounds like, okay, here's why we should go forward with this program. And they'll come back and say, okay, okay, but do you have any data on whether this is going to work? And then I'll come back and say, look, we don't have a ton of data yet. It's still a pretty new field. And like we've, there's lots of different people doing it. It really depends on what your context is. But like, here's, here's what we know. Okay, but that's not 
enough data. Like we we really can't go forward with this until there's something you know that's not going to be as risky. So then we'll come back and say, collected all this data from inside of your organization. Here's this group, this group, and this group that are saying, "I'm not happy. Please do these things," and they'll say, "Okay." But how many people actually said it? And can you actually go get us some actual studies of other companies like mine that have done this, so that we don't take a risk and don't make people upset? And then we say, which people are you making up? And then they look blankly and say, <laughs> wait a second. <laughs> and we're like, yeah. Anyway, I think the reason that I put it this way is that I think that data is important. Yes that is used as a tool to block this work because it is inherently uncomfortable and it involves having to do growth and it involves having to um, put some money and some priorities into it. And I think people ultimately just don't think it's that important. And so they're able to use data as this kind of delegitimizing or, or uh, scapegoating force that they can say, we don't have enough to do it. You that's know, my thoughts on that no, in a nutshell no no first of all so again shout out to you because that's man it's incredible you know i might have to just go ahead and drop another flex mom so it's interesting though because you're talking about how organizations can use quote-unquote data to slow down or block efforts to make organizations more inclusive but i also think like there's some there's something to be said about how data itself is reported aggregated or analyzed right so like there's how, how do we account for and how in your experience as a data scientist, do you account for the biases that exist within like data analytics itself? Right. So let's just say you get the data. How do you account for biases and how that and the data that you receive? And then how do you account for any biases that you have conscious or, or otherwise um, in how you analyze and report that out? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I, I mean, there's a lot to be said here. And I think this conversation is happening in other places like AI as well. Right, um, right. I think, first of all, like the way that we use. So let's go back to the evidence based question for a minute. Yeah. So when people talk about evidence, they're often talking about academic research that has been done as an academic researcher myself. I know that a lot of this research is really not legitimate for talking about um any, any bit of this work with any kind of intersectional lens, because most of this work has been done using a super white sample at an Ivy League institution in a lab where all of the variables have been held constant except for the one thing that you're researching. And that unfortunately has translated in a lot of cases to best practices where, you know, people say, oh, well, we have to change, you know, this one thing in our organization because research has shown that when you change this one thing, this happens. Um, of course, that doesn't really incorporate a lot of people's experiences. And I want to say also that I am fully guilty of doing this in my past research. So as a gender bias researcher, I often talked about women and men as this very like homogenous group. And really when I'm talking about women and men, I'm talking about white women and men because that's my sample. Right. And that's the, that's the lens through which I was doing the work and like black women's experience are going to be super different and my effects might totally change. So, you know, one of my effects that I found was that women and I should say white women, cause that was the majority of my sample mm. are given um, less accurate performance feedback than men. So, 
even though they're judged to be doing poorly, their managers will tell them that they're doing okay. By the way, this this work was done in a lab with a primarily sample of white people who are Ivy League educated and through samples in, you know, Mechanical Turk um, online. So just, you know, thinking about that from an intersectional lens, do I know that that is going to happen in the same way for women of color when thinking about different types of women in the workplace no and yet we still use these words you know this is a gender bias effect without really knowing you know what some of the uh, different groups might experience and so i do think there's that there's that bias um i also think in terms of the the data that we're analyzing it's this is another really important thing um when we get survey data often companies just want to rely on that survey data to make decisions but the problem is is that there are certain groups especially the ones that feel less safe in organizations do not answer the survey and so you're leaving out groups of people who are the most important to hear from if you're just looking at one type of information um Instead, it's better to go and do a qualitative uh, assessment while on top of the data and make sure that you're getting down to the bottom of some of the trends that you see, but you're also including voices that wouldn't necessarily participate in a written way. So there's lots of different ways that bias can creep in and the way that we analyze it and the way that we do that research is really important. I'm really curious about your opinions on this, and I've shared this on another interview, but I want to bring it up here. So your work heavily focuses on partnering with organizations um, to help them set up their DNI strategies. And like when I talk to other diversity, equity and inclusion professionals, a lot of times this work is delivered in the context of office hours or workshops or, um, you know, like trainings. I'm curious, though, like, have you helped groups transition from seeing diversity, equity and inclusion as like these isolated singular events to being more of like an iterative journey? that they're on to develop and grow and like partner with them. Like, have you seen that or have you helped any organizations kind of pivot in that way? Yeah, actually. So I think it's, I think it's hard. I think it's really hard. Um, Most of the work we get is for check the box type work. You know, initially a lot of organizations want to come in and hire us to do a workshop or um, uh, an assessment and then, and then go from there, which is totally fine. Often the people who are initiating those programs are internal HR and DEI practitioners who have a very limited budget that they're working with and need something to be able to convince stakeholders that this is worthwhile and that there's a desire for it, or they just want to get the, you know, they want to get it flowing. So, you know, we love doing that kind of work because it allows us to be able to impart important knowledge. For example, we focus a lot on systems bias, not just interpersonal or unconscious bias. We focus on biases that are structural and how those relate to historical systems of oppression. Um, So we do get our education in there. But in order to do this work successfully, it has to be integrated with other business objectives and as an outcome itself. So we know, you know, you can make the business case for it. It's tied to ROI, it's tied to innovation. I mean it's a really important part of culture. I've found that in order to convince stakeholders, I often offer the risk side of this as well. It's really risky to not do this work for Mm. many reasons. I mean, talent attraction for one, but there's also your culture can fall apart and, and that can actually lose tons of money. But ultimately our aim is to get people to see why it's more than a business case. And I think we've had this success with a couple of companies. I'm thinking of one in particular where 
Um, and actually, this is one that I've mentioned before in some of my stories where we came in and, and did a series of conversations with the executive team, trying to convince them that, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion is a good way to go. And it took a long time. It just took six months of really educating people, um, bringing them in in terms of conversation, letting them contribute their thoughts and fears. And really, we use, you know, empathy, but also just vulnerability there to understand, like, where the pain point is. And now we've got, you know, a multi-year scope with them. And they have fully understood, and we're working with every single organization and team within their company, and it's become a priority. But it did take some time. And so, you know, I think there's hope to be had, but I think you have to do it really intentionally and really methodically in order to to get people there, unless you have someone who's on board already. That really leads me like to my next question. What do you think the next step is for diversity, equity, inclusion like as a corporate for-profit space, right? I think... And I ask because I see it's weird. And again, like I'm not a sociologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a, I'm not a behavioral scientist. Like I'm just a change manager mm-hmm. who is also passionate about diversity and inclusion, who's doing his own thing and kind of creating his own path. So like, it's almost like you have like this growing activist wing and like community mm-hmm. organizing wing within this diversity, equity, inclusion space. Mm-hmm. There's also like this growing academic wing that is almost like a white moderate. But then I see like this other group that's almost pushing against like the community organizing activist attitudes and sentiments Mm. almost to the point where I've seen things like this on LinkedIn, no doubt, like where Mm -hmm. I've seen things that people say just because you're a person of color doesn't mean that you should be in diversity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. Right. Like there's like these like narratives of, you know, you're passionate, but your passion doesn't equal education or credentialing. And so so I'm I'm really curious about like, where do you see this space going next? And, and and what do you think is like the next step to really take this work to like the next level? Yeah, that's a that's a big question. And I I'm, I'm just going to kind of share some thoughts. I don't know that I have a perfect answer for you yeah. on this, but I, I think, you know, to your comment around you see, you know, these kind of different camps on social media and practitioners and different approaches and ways of doing this work. And I think actually that that's a really important dynamic to have to move the work forward. I think it's the same thing that we see, say, like in the Democratic Party, where there's right. a more radical left side right. and then right. there's the centrist side and there's this push and pull constantly of like, what do we do and where do we go? And and in that and, and through doing that, we're, we're creating new definitions and understandings. And, you know, I get a ton of education from just reading through Twitter on a daily basis of like, oh, I didn't know that word. I hadn't thought about it in that way before Um, and trying to see like where my values align. But I think that in order to progress, we need pressure from the outside. We need radical pressure. And we also need the more compromising inside pressure of, okay, we're going to take this slow and do this methodically and bring people along. And I think you need both those forces. I think the outside pressure um, is the social pressure that it really validates some of the inside pressure that we're putting on people. So, you know, let's say I'm taking a company along trying to get them to understand using empathy and, you know, they're, they're doing okay, but then they have a PR crisis because something they posted on their social media site gets called out 
And those two forces operating together create a really successful way forward. And I think that's also why there's different roles for different people within this space. I do think we should be pushing boundaries. And I do think we should be pushing people to get there. And I think some of the comments that are happening around this stuff is really just evidence that that's happening. But I think the third part of this is just that we need companies to lend more support to actual innovation within this space. Going back to that data conversation, you know, by demanding best practices and more evidence to prove the things that we already know work and um, to prove, you know, that we're actually legitimate in doing this work. It's stifling innovation. We need organizations and leaders who have the privilege of being in these spaces already to put money and time and effort and spaces towards creating innovation in the DEI space. We need more collaboration between academics, leaders, corporate employees, um, and we all need to work together to be able to, to create new pathways forward. But I think we have to get out of that headspace of thinking about, you know, best practices, best practices, best practices, and start taking a little bit more risks, because I think we're seeing risk the wrong way. We're seeing risk as like, what if I do this work and it goes wrong? When we should be seeing risk as, you know, the way that any other company sees innovation and risk, which is sometimes you have to play around with the, you know, the parameters in order to do the work the most effective way. I would love to see data on this just so that we can keep track of what we're doing and what works and what doesn't. I think I would love to see more data like that, but it means that companies have to release their data on what works and what doesn't. And when diversity and inclusion stops being a shameful thing, you know, when, when, when companies stop thinking, oh gosh, it's so horrible that I only have 20% women or 5% black people in our company and nobody knows. So I don't want to talk about it. Like everybody knows, everybody knows you're a tech company. Like it's, it's bad. Talk about it and like actually publish it and, and support new ways of thinking about this stuff. I think we need all three prongs of pressure there to move forward. Man, Dr. Jan Pohl, I have to just thank you again. Like this has been a super dope conversation. I want to give you the last word. Is there anything else, like any shout outs, any parting words? Before we let you up out of here. Thank you. I, I feel the same way. This has been such a fun conversation. Thank you for letting me nerd out and be on your podcast. I think your podcast is wonderful. Thank you for doing the work that you do. I also just want to give a shout out to my team again because they're so amazing and I feel grateful for them every single day. Yeah. And to all the authors who have helped educate me to get here. And Twitter, honestly, like not Twitter, the company, but like the people who are actually being brave and voicing, yes. you know, their thoughts on Twitter yes. and helping educate us, even if it means that they are taking flack for it. I think it's been such an important part of my own growth. So thanks to everybody. Oh, man, that's beautiful. And yes, and we'll make sure that we have um, that we list all the authors and we'll have all of that, all of that content in the show notes. Y'all So, you know, what I'm saying make sure you check it out because, um, you know, again, believe women listen to women believe black women believe all women there's a lot of great work that's being done it's funny there's an understated like expectation or kind of like tension around who really deserves to talk about these things and those conversations don't really happen until black and brown people start trying to talk about diversity and inclusion but that's a whole nother conversation but the point is mm -hmm. a lot of the work that comes into really educating yourself what i've been learning is it's about reading the work that black and brown women have written about this, mm -hmm. about this space. Right. And so I just yes. want to encourage, like, if you're, if you are listening to this, you're passionate about diversity, equity, and inclusion, check out the show notes, use that as a starting point. 
um, and just start reading, like, like educate yourself something like don't depend on these super Ivy League white institutions to tell you <laughs> what diversity is. Um, it is one of multiple data points. I would say start with the black women and then work your way outward from there. All mm-hmm. right. Uh, well, cool, cool, cool. Thank you all for listening to the Living Corporate Podcast. You know, we do this. We know we post the content three times a week. Uh, we all over the place. So if you just Google Living Corporate, we're going to pop up because we got it like that. Ow. Um, we're also uh, on Instagram at Living Corporate, on Twitter at Living Corporate underscore pod. And then again, if you want to check us out, if you just got to, let's say you old school and you want to type it in in the browser, then it's www.living-corporate. Please say that dash dot com. We're also Living Corporate dot co, Living Corporate dot TV, Living Corporate dot US, Living Corporate dot net, Living Corporate dot org. Lily, we have all the living corporates except for livingcorporate.com. We have all the other living corporates, okay? So, we're trying what's the what's that thing when you um SEO, we're trying to take it over, okay? One one domain at a time. So, we're out here. Um, let's see here. Until next time. This is, again has been Zach and you've been listening to uh Dr. Lily Jampo, data scientist, behavioral organizational just beast, general researcher all over uh super dope white wolf ally uh, what else we got? I don't want to say edge snatcher because I mean you're still white. I'm trying to get you in trouble, but just super cool. Viking Ashkenazi Jew hero. How about that? Is that cool? That that's awesome, and I'm someday hopefully gonna fit that all in my LinkedIn profile. <laughs> <laughs> Till next time, y'all. We'll catch y'all. Peace. <laughs> Bye. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.